the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is a Harvard Medical School professor, Robert B. Brooks, Ph.D., who teamed up with pediatric neuropsychologist Sam Goldstein, also a Ph.D., for a uh, book called Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts for Lifetime Success. He joins me by phone. Hey, Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. Um, you know, I'm getting kind of long in the tooth, as they say, and uh, <laughs> I, I remember a time, or at least uh, people talking about a time, when kids should be seen and not heard. Um, we're doing things very differently now, but what are we missing? Well, that's an interesting question. By the way, I'm still reacting to your, uh, the introduction before I came on, uh, you had some very funny quotes there or people. So uh, now I'll focus on the book though, Tom, I especially appreciate you being here. I, I, I don't know if it's so much missing uh, what uh, I, as an, a psychologist, what I became very interested in as a father and now as a grandfather, I just became very uh, interested over the years in uh, what I felt was at times a lack of focus on certain qualities in kids. Uh, I was also influenced, there was a study at the Harvard Grad School of Education that basically showed that kids today seem to be more interested in getting good grades and certain what we call achievement than in qualities of compassion and caring. 
So when my colleague, uh, Sam Goldstein, he regretted that he couldn't be with us uh, this morning, we wrote a book almost 20 years ago now, Raising Resilient Children, in which we felt that we had to help kids to deal more effectively with adversity, that we had to help kids uh, really be able to handle mistakes and failure. And uh, we really, in that book, more and more started to focus on with the study at Harvard basically showed that we have to help kids to be much more compassionate and caring and provide them with opportunities to uh, do that. And that's why in our newest book we really elaborate on uh, on that book. So in this new book, and please interrupt me at any time because I'm so excited by it, uh, in this new book we basically looked at research and found that there were certain qualities in kids that were basically there from birth things like compassion, empathy, the precursors were there, altruism, responsibility. And what we basically are saying in the new book is there are these wonderful qualities, we call them instincts because they're there from birth, but it's not like a bird building a nest. They're really intuitive ways of uh, acting uh, and knowing. And we said these wonderful qualities are there. They're very important in helping us to be resilient, to bounce back from adversity, and they're very important in terms of the connections we make with other people. So it's not so much the things we're missing. I just felt that we had to, in addition to emphasizing helping kids bounce back from adversity, we also had to emphasize these very important qualities which uh we have to build upon, such as compassion and caring. And I could go more into this, but your question already triggered so much uh, in in terms of my discussing the new book. Well, I get lucky like that sometimes, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm not sure about that, but I'm sure you're you're very used to asking questions, Tom. um, But but I want to get into some of the seven instincts that... that, um, that you suggest parents should nurture in children. Mm-hmm. And, and the first one right out of the bat is intuitive optimism. And I just have this picture of my kids when they were preteen and, and teenage, you, you know, sort of, um, I don't know, they, they had what seemed like a permanent case of the whatevers. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it's, and it's <laughs> hard to imagine um, kids being instinctively optimistic um, because they seem bored somehow. Uh, yeah, well, okay, what I'm going to say, I hope it doesn't sound like uh, too crazy in this regard. Kids are born optimistic, and we know that there's such a thing as what they call dispositional optimism That uh, in this regard. Now, when I say kids are born optimistic, I know some of your listeners may say, this guy is is, is crazy. But think of it this way. Uh, if you look at the behavior of children, when they start to walk, they fall, but they get up and uh, attempt it again. We give examples in our book where kids will build the tower. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking of a year old child when I was consulting their preschool. They'll build a, a tower, it falls down. What do they do? They build it again, and they build it again. So, there, if, if you look at optimism in the sense of things can get better things can improve from birth you basically see you see that that i'm not saying all kids because one of the things i want to bring up when you uh, you know is this every child is somewhat different from birth we know that kids have different temperaments from birth 
But what I do believe is that there is this, what we call an instinct, a certain intuitive way of knowing that kids think things will improve. I'm talking about, this is what was fascinating about writing this book, this research that showed kids six months old, a year old, two years old, were showing that stick-to-itiveness, that perseverance, and it really is based on, if I do this, things can improve. Now, when at different points in our life, we could have been born more optimistic than other people. At different points, we may get discouraged. I mean, look at what the past year with COVID. Uh, in many of the webinars I've given, people will say that, you know, they've gotten very pessimistic. Fortunately, uh, with the uh, introduction of the vaccines, people now are more optimistic. I saw it in my own sons growing up. During the teenage years, when you mentioned that, kids are struggling <laughs> with so many things uh, that it's almost like, you know, what we may consider little problems or big problems to them, and they wonder if they'll ever improve. But the reality is most do. So I think what we were trying to say is let's look at these instincts. And I'm glad you brought up optimism first, because if that's not there, almost no, nothing else is there. If there, if kids can be optimistic, then what we try to really look at is, you know, how do we foster this? Uh, you know, what do we say or do with kids, as, even as young as two, three years of age, which will help them to see that things can get 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 better if things are not as good, that they can improve, and that's why we talk a lot about how we deal with kids when they make mistakes and how we talk to kids. You know, when you mentioned the teenage years. One of the mistakes we make sometimes is we try to be overly optimistic. And I hope I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth, just to give you an example. Yeah, you sound like an economist, Bob. (laughs) That's really interesting, because that was my first major in college before I switched to psychology. They always say, you know, well, on the one hand, but then on the other hand. Okay, but (laughs) but I'll mention it right. I know. So I, I guess I couldn't escape from that first major. But... Uh, one of the things is that I've really been emphasizing in my webinars during COVID is that some kids will be you know, very pessimistic. They're remote learning, uh, hybrid learning. They're not seeing their friends. And sometimes what parents do, you know, the kid is basically saying they feel unhappy. Sometimes we come in and too quickly say, don't worry, everything will be okay. But no one wants to be told how they should feel. So I've been suggesting to parents, and I know this is is maybe a little tangential from your original question, you know, if a kid is actually telling us they're feeling a certain way, I I actually feel we should say to them, you know what, I'm glad you could say this. And I think it's perfectly okay for parents to share that, you know, sometimes I'm feeling the same way, but you don't want to leave it at that point. What you then bring up, and this is where optimism comes in any age, you bring up the possibility that things getting better by saying, you know, let's look at some of the things we could do. See, that's that's really optimism. If If anyone feels there are things you could do in the face of something like COVID, then at least they feel that they could be more optimistic. You know, it's very sad to me is how politicized wearing face masks and social distancing have from the very beginning have been because many parents have told me their kids are actually more optimistic when they wear face masks, when they social distance, because at least they feel they're doing something. Right, right. 
but the but the pre- precursors of that optimism are really there when that kid falls, you know, the first steps they take and they get up again. When they build the tower, the two examples I use, because those were actual examples I've used in uh, several books, and they build that tower again, they feel that things can improve. But that, that kind of gets to... Um that that kind of segues to uh, intrinsic motivation, which is um, interesting because with my daughters and and they couldn't have been more different um, right uh-huh. right from the beginning. I mean they were mm. they were like night and day. Yeah. Um, but for one in particular, if she were building that tower. And it fell down. She would build it again. She would have this dictuitiveness that you talked about. Mm-hmm. But that's because she was building a ladder to get some cookies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Okay. Uh, so she was more optimistic. But I'm sorry, I left. But no, no, it, it it used to tickle me because you know she she just she had a motivation she had a plan right you know and and she was going to make it work one way or the other she was going to get her hands on those cookies right and again i'm going to say throughout our book tom in every chapter we say while the instinct is there it it is different it could be different in each child but we still want to um reinforce it so in terms of intrinsic motivation this has been a of great interest to me because in my work, I do a lot of consulting with schools and uh, in my therapy work, uh, I, I and in my work with mental health professionals, I've often said, what is your theory of motivation? And I, I actually coined the term motivating environments. How do we create environments for our children or in the workplace where people really want to work with us and you know get a task done? So I just want to backtrack with that and say, Years ago, there was a psychologist at Harvard. His name was Robert White. And this was in the 50s. Uh, and I read his book, his work later on, but I'll tell you why it was very important to me. I read it in graduate school in the, in the 60s. Was Robert White said that within every child from birth, see, it's almost like instinctual. He called it a drive. There is the wish to succeed and master your environment. And he said, so kids are intrinsically motivated to want to do things to master their environment. And that gets back to intuitive optimism, even that you're, you're going to be able to walk and, you know, things you can be able to do certain uh, things. So what happens then is, and this is, you know, we, I've written a great deal about is then researchers wondered this. If that's intrinsic motivation, it comes from within, whether it's to get cookies <laughs> or whatever it might be, you know, in that regard. They, there was actually a study done now, like, I think, 40 years ago at a, pre, at a preschool, and they wondered what would happen if kids who love to draw, you then gave them an award for, for drawing. And you said to them, I'm going to give you an award. And uh, another group of kids, they said, they didn't tell they were going to give an award, but at the end, they actually gave them an award for their drawing. And a third group, they didn't give any award. And this is a fascinating study. So you have these three I, You know, I, I, I hate cliffhangers, but I'm going to have to interrupt you because I have to take a break here, Bob. Can you stick around so we can talk some more? 
Oh, yeah, because this study really got me to do a lot of thinking. Sure, I'm, I'm sorry. I know I'm going that's, on that's, with this study. That's but okay. Was, we'll we'll finish the story after okay. we share okay. these messages with the listeners. Okay. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. 
Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue now with uh, our conversation with Harvard Medical School professor Robert Brooks about uh, his book, Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts for Lifetime Success. And uh, Bob was uh, just just getting to the good part of a story when we went to break, so we're going to pick it up there. Bob, thanks for uh, sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no, not at all. And uh, it's, uh, it's just a pleasure to... Uh, you know, be on your show. I really appreciate your asking. So, uh, not a. Pl- it was just when you said cliffhanger, I brought back memories when I was a kid with the cliffhangers at the movies. Uh, but this may <laughs> that's be a what little it, That's different. what it felt like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, maybe not as exciting. But basically, just to go back, why I wanted to mention this study. We were talking I, about it, motivation. Yes, intrinsic motivation. And many years ago, the study was done, and it was with preschool kids, and. Basically, these were kids who uh, the examiners found all love to draw, and then they decided to, with one group, they they said to them, the next time they're going to draw, we, we're going to give you an award for drawing. Another group, they didn't tell them they were going to give a, an award, but they did. And the third group, they didn't give any award. They just let them draw. And then two weeks later, they looked at if that had any uh, impact, what they did. And first of all, my feeling was, these are, this is two weeks later, why would it have any impact on whether kids like to draw or not? Well, this study, which has really been cited quite often, found the following. The kids who were told they were going to give an award for drawing, after they got the award, then in sub- two weeks later, they were less interested in drawing. The group that was not told they were going to get an award but did get an award, they still showed an interest. And the group that wasn't given any award, they still showed an interest. And what that showed is when they actually, I mean, this was almost counterintuitive. When they, uh, kids were given an award for an activity, and then we're not going to get an award the next time, they were less interested in the activity. It took away the fun, actually. Now, that may have been one study, but in our book, we talk a lot about the research that shows when you start saying to kids, we're going to reward you for these different activities in schools, which is extrinsic motivation, and it's not just in schools, Tom. We, there's also wonderful research to show in the workplace, whatever. When extrinsic rewards are introduced, which are everywhere, it actually lessens kids' interest I mean, most of the time in, in, in the activity. So once the award is not there anymore, or reward, whatever you want to call it, there's less interest in doing that particular activity. And that's why I, all along, I've always talked about we have to find what kids are passionate about. We have to find what they're interested in. Not everything is going to be of great interest, but once you start adding uh, rewards and what they call contingent rewards, if you do this, we'll give you this, it actually lessens a child's motivation to engage in that reward, that activity. And that's why I wanted to bring up that well-cited study with preschoolers, uh, and it's it is almost at any level. Uh, you know, when I do talks for business groups, 
some, sometimes what, what we talk about is motivation, and the issue is that uh, sometimes when things are not going very well, right away we think of rewards and punishments, uh, and that often is not very successful. So uh, what I've always said is, what is it that uh, if we stick with schools and when kids are young, what is it that kids could do at school? Not everything is going to be exciting that will help them to be really be motivated to be in school. And that ties to some of the other instincts. So I, I, I hope I'm so, was somewhat clear about this, that we have to be very careful when we start rewarding kids for things that uh, we should think about how do we make it intrinsically motivating. That's that's fascinating. When we started talking about motivation, I, I thought of uh, an interview with uh, Stephen King. Unfortunately, it wasn't one that I did, but one that I heard. And I, I, I share this often with writers. Um, the interviewer asked Stephen King, said, do you write to a muse or to a schedule? And he said, always to the muse. But fortunately, the muse shows up every morning at 9 o'clock. <laughs> The good old Stephen King there. Uh, that that is that is very interesting. Well, I have never interviewed uh, Stephen King. I would just say I think whatever the reason, Stephen King gets a great deal of enjoyment out of his uh, writing and excitement because I think, uh, if I recall correctly, he was uh, a high school teacher, and but he was very interested. See, that was a passion of his to write, and the rest is history. Once he started to write uh, these. Uh, kinds of uh, things. Well, and you can't be that prolific without having a passion for it. You know what I was going to say? You know, someone has said to me, because this book is my 19th book, and they said, how how, how do you write? How are you able to do this? And I've written book chapters, and I said, and I, 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 I hope this doesn't sound too simplistic, Tom, I said, I only write what I really am interested in. I've had requests to write things on topics I'm not as interested in. And I gave that up long ago because then it felt like a burden. And in writing this book, even with uh, my colleague Sam, and we've written you know, a number of books together, just looking at some of the research that about, boy, you know, three, four, six months, I didn't even know some of these, this research. Kids are already showing uh, compassion or uh, caring or the precursors of empathy. So what you're bringing up is, uh, we know that there are things we have to do that we may not be crazy about doing. But one of the things, especially when I've consulted to schools, even to things that are some, what, maybe not as motivating, think about how you might make it motivating or have some things in school where kids are excited about it. I, matter of fact, if I can give you one example that is actually part of another instinct, but when I was writing one of my first books, which is hard for me to believe, is I think like 30, I wrote 30 years ago, was a book about school climate. And you'll see why I'm bringing this up. And they basically, the publisher asked me, if you were to create a school where kids would be more motivated and resilient, what would be some of the characteristics of that school? So it was exciting for me to think about that. You know, I had done a lot of consulting to schools. But what I decided to do was I said, I wonder what people remember as some of their best memories of school. So as I was giving workshops around the country, I gave out a one-page questionnaire to be filled out anonymously. And the first question, which is the one I'm going to focus on, is of all the memories you have of school, what is one of your favorite memories? Something 
an adult at the school said or did, because I wanted to see the impact of an adult, that boosted, and I use these words, your dignity, your self-esteem, and your motivation. Tom, the, one of the most positive memories and most frequently cited memories of school, positive ones, and I had not even anticipated it, was when you were asked to help out. I got things like I remember when a uh, teacher asked me to tutor a younger child. I remember when a teacher asked me to pass out the milk and straws. And you'll see why I'm bringing this up because it's a very powerful uh, point in my work. And I remember saying that's the most positive memory of school when you were asked to help out. Well, <laughs> we now we now know at any age, not just kids, because when I wrote a book about resilience in adults, through our senior years, one of the things that helps us to be most motivated and resilient and less stressed is when you help others. And th this doesn't mean volunteering 18 hours a day, of course, doing it in a reasonable way. Now, why do I bring this up? In the, the book Raising Resilient Children, which you know was, uh, was one of the first books that I wrote with uh, Sam Goldstein, we say, and we weren't even into instincts then, we think there's an inborn need in children to want to help. You see it. The three or four-year-old, when my sons were three, four years old, I'd be mowing the lawn. Can I help? Raking leaves. Can I help? And I, I kid about it. I say, let them help now because, within reason, it has to be <laughs> yeah. safe, of course. You don't want them mowing the lawn. But I say because what I hear is by the time the 10 or 11 parents say they don't want to help, but often I'll say to parents, what are they doing? There'll be many examples where they're helping their friends. They just shift who they're helping, you know, in those days. So why do I bring this up? Whenever I go up to school, and I'm very interested in motivation, and let's say I'm going up to consult about a kid who's not motivated, one of the first questions I'll ask is, what is one thing this child does at the school in which he or she feels they're actually making a positive difference in the life of someone else? See, that's what's really motivating, and it's there from birth. You know, the um, the wish to help. And one of them, uh, you know, one of the things was uh, has to do with genuine altruism. The the altruism, the wish to help, is there. There's research to show at 18 months, two years already. So, when we talk about intrinsic motivation, I, I started to say. Don't say to kids, remember to do your chores. I discovered both children and adults don't like chores. And because words are powerful, and you certainly know with, with your, all, all that you do on radio, words are powerful. Instead, even say things like, you know, I can really use your help right now. And saying it that way leads many kids to be much more willing to help because it's intrinsically motivating for them. And I, I know I went into great uh, detail with that study I, you know, I did in writing my first uh, book, um, but it really had a big impact on me because that I started to say that's how you teach kids responsibility and compassion, which little did I know 18 years later were going to be parts of the seven instincts. In that regard, I'll pause for a second because I get very excited about <laughs> no, that's that's you know it, it's. Uh it's always a real pleasure for somebody like me who's doing interviews to find somebody who really wants to talk about their field, their book, etc. You Thank know, you. Those, those times, you know, when you ask somebody, you know, a very thoughtful question and they come back with, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, I know that. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just said, yeah. We, uh, we don't want well, that, Bob. Um, but I do yeah. want to ask you about, sure. uh, you know, I'm looking at, at a list of the, of the seven uh, mm-hmm. instincts, and one of them is simultaneous intelligence, and that had me scratching my head immediately. Yeah, well, if my colleague Sam Goldstein were here, he's the uh, he's the real scientist. Uh, he, I always kid. I say you're the walking encyclopedia, and Sam brought this up, and you know, because it was a real a collaboration. I've been collaborating with him for twenty years, and it was the same thing: simultaneous intelligence. What exactly do we mean, and why are we including this? So, and why is it important? Well, what we mean by simultaneous uh, you know, intelligence is basically, uh, maybe I should backtrack. Most of the intelligence tests, as a psychologist, I, I administered so many intelligence tests. And one of the things that always was of concern, and Sam is a neuropsychologist so he, and a clinical psychologist, so he especially does a lot of evaluations, cognitive evaluations. But I'll, tr- I'll make believe Sam is here, and I'm speaking for him at this point. Um, uh, one of the things with intelligence tests is both Sam and myself really felt that a lot of them, the ones that we used, really measured acquired knowledge. It was much more like what you learn in school. Not all of them, Tom, but a lot. And then that was really very prejudicial to kids who grew up in poverty or under racism or did not have some of the educational opportunities others did. And uh, then what we more and more people are looking much more at what we call uh, you know reasoning and thinking and solving problems so with simultaneous intelligence is and it's probably a little more difficult to explain than some of the others like compassion and empathy which i hope we get, have a chance to get into uh... it's really seeing how things fit together it's really problem solving it it uh, isn't based on you know uh, what years World War One took place or World War Two with some factual knowledge, but it really has to do with you face a problem and how do things come together. You know, what's really intriguing to me, some of the best problem solvers I've seen. I, I uh, my wife and I used to have. He died a, a couple of years ago, but a wonderful uh, handyman. And he uh, he would do things in our house because I'm not very handy. And I how he would just you could see him thinking and putting things together, and whatever and how to solve uh, you know a problem if something was broken, which I would not be able to do. It's it's a certain kind of intelligence in that regard. So not not to overly simplify it, but it, it really has to do with uh, how we create categories how how we look at a problem solve it how we bring things uh together and uh that's why in schools when i've sat in classrooms because as i said i've done a lot of work with schools i want a teacher not just saying you know world war one started because of this or world war two this but really having kids think about what would have been different if this happened or this happened if you were there what in what way could have you solved it so it's not it's in all areas of one's uh life it's watching a kid build a tower that falls down and then the next time building a tower with a much bigger base so it doesn't fall down as easily that's how do you start fitting things together uh, towards a certain end result and i know it still may be difficult you know in our book we give examples and actual uh questions parents can ask kids about 
how would you solve this? So looking at different problem solving to help parents get a better idea of, you know, what is involved in terms of the questions you ask to help kids be better thinkers. So I I hope it's, it wasn't too obtuse what I just said. No, not no, it, not at all. It, and it, 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 I'm sorry. And we'll revisit that in in just just a moment because mm. it it ultimately will tie everything all together. But I do want to talk about empathy and altruism, because as I mentioned mm. earlier, Bob, I, you know my two daughters. I said they were like night and day. One right. was much more self-centered than the mm-hmm. other and and the the younger of the two was always more empathetic more altruistic right. she really had genuine concern for other people and mm-hmm. it could be animals I, I, she just loved other beings um, much more uh, than the than the other daughter and i'm not saying the other daughter wasn't kind to people she was right but she was just much more self-involved than she was with other people the younger one not so much so i I thought maybe we could kind of roll those two together oh sure uh no i'd love to first of all let me reinforce what you said um in a lot of my writings i say uh well a couple things i said one is from birth kids are very different so even in terms of empathy some kids are born more empathic now in our book we stress that even if some kids are born more empathic or compassionate and i'll discuss our definition of that in a moment that doesn't mean we still we we can't reinforce it in uh in every child but the inborn temperament of kids plays a large role in in their de- certainly their development. It's always interesting to me when parents say, "You know, I have two or three kids. I parented them exactly the same, and they're very different." And I say, "But you really didn't parent them the same because how they experienced you uh, is different, and their temperament is uh, different." So I give that background. I, I'm glad you brought it up with your kids. Every kid is, is going to be different, but if parents say, like one of the instincts, I'll, I'll get to compassion, empathy. If, and I, I'll define it also, if compassion, empathy is very important, we know that some kids from birth, just like you said, each daughter was very different. So what is compassion, empathy? First of all, empathy is the ability to put yourself, again, I don't want to be overly simplistic, inside the shoes of your child or any other person and see the world through their eyes. It is critical to understand another person's point of view. Compassion, and this is what other research have said too, compassion is being able, if you will, uh, to use that empathy to really take steps to help other people. And that's where it ties to altruism. They overlap right. a great deal. Uh, but one of the things, uh, were you going to say something, Tom, because I get on a roll about no, the I, I just I, I wanted to kind of pull those two together because I sensed mm-hmm. there was some overlap there. But more mm-hmm. importantly, and we're really only up to about five of the seven, and before we run out of time, uh, you know, oh. it, it, it sounds like a lot of these traits exist in children from birth. And the book is about right. nurturing these existing instincts, these seven instincts exactly. for lifetime success. Yes. And and I want to, if we can, spend a minute or two talking about the nurturing part of this, how we, um, how we can help magnify these, these existing traits 
um, mm-hmm. so they become values. Oh, okay, a wonderful question. Uh, you know, on that. First of all, I say in the book we say parents use and other caregivers you serve as critical models. It's hard for a kid uh, to really be optimistic, and we, I, we give actual case examples throughout the book. Uh, I, it's hard for kids to be optimistic if their parents are always saying, oh, things will never work and, you know, the sky is falling or things like that. This may seem obvious, but in my clinical work, I saw many examples where parents wanted their kids to be more compassionate or caring, or they said that or more optimistic than they themselves weren't. Like just what you said, with compassion and empathy, I, I will say to parents, what do do you reinforce it in your kids? Do your kids observe you? How do your kids see you? As a matter of fact, one exercise I ask parents to do is, in terms of empathy, think about how you come across to your kids. Is I say, write down how you would, the words you would like your kid to use to describe you. Because all kids have words to describe us. And next I say, what do you intentionally say or do on a regular basis so they're likely to use the words you hope they would use? So if parents say, I want my kids to you know, see me as caring, I say, well, what do you do? I want my kids to see uh, me as altruistic. Well, what do you actually say or do? I want my kids to see me. Well, they wouldn't use simultaneous intelligence, a good problem solver. Well, how do they see that? So I, we get very, you know, I get very concrete about that. So with empathy, compassion and empathy, which maybe is one of the, uh, my greatest interests, and simply enough to say, what do they observe you? Intuitive optimism to take that. What do you actually say and do? If things aren't working, you you say you kids you serve as a model, so you could say, "Wow, this didn't work, but what did I learn from it?" Because each little step, example, starts to really reinforce that instinct. How something doesn't work, and our kid is getting discouraged. Same thing. You develop a problem-solving attitude. Let's figure out what we could do differently next time. Uh, you know, along you know along the way. I, I hope I'm answering your question. No, I think no, I think, Bob, I, I think you're doing great in this. Is a wonderful conversation. I feel like we've just scratched the surface or the surface, and we're just about out of time. Obviously, uh-huh. the book is a great place to start. Um, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about, about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, Bob, do you have a website? Yes, it's simply my name, Dr. Dr. No period of space, robertbrooks.com. And your listeners may be interested in knowing, I write a monthly article. I've been doing it for 20 years. There are over 200 briefer articles. And, uh, then one of the next ones will be on tenacity and children the book which we thought would be out now there was little delay we're hoping it's going to be out uh probably within the next three four weeks so if they go to my website they'll see information about the book amazon is actually you could pre-order it if people are interested there but my website has a lot of different articles about these topics we've been discussing uh tom because they've been of interest for many years uh, in that regard, and they, you know, they they can also see when the uh, this particular book will be out, and some of the other writings, especially the ones I've done with Sam Goldstein. I know, you know what I, I know in, in several. I really appreciate the length of your interview, anyway, because I, as I said, 
once I get started, I must tell you, <laughs> as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about patients I've seen and parenting workshops and, you know, different questions that have come up. And Well, I now we're thinking about those things, too, Bob. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bob, thanks so much for spending this time. I, I have to go to break here, but uh, it's been a real pleasure. Tom, thank you so much for having me, and it's a pleasure to be interviewed by someone who shows such an interest in, in, hey. in these topics. <laughs> Take care. Take care. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. 
Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. We have had a problem lately in Chicago with uh, people jumping off ledges. We've always had a problem with people jumping off ledges in Chicago. And uh, so many so that the police department has come out with a regulation uh, on how to handle a guy on a ledge, you know, the patrolman on the beat. The first point is never go out on the ledge in your uniform, you see, because the, the image of authority may be just the reason they're out there to begin with. Secondly, you should be very casual and never issue any direct commands to them, you see, never antagonize them. And thirdly, and this is really, I suppose, a main point, uh, be completely unsympathetic because basically they want to be talked out of it. So I would like to present a Chicago policeman under this new regulation. He sees a guy on a ledge. He slips into his sport jacket, and <laughs> I think he would probably light a cigarette, and then he would walk out on the ledge, something like this. Oh, hi. <laughs> you, uh, you thinking about jumping, are you? Your first time, is it? <laughs> Me? No, no, I'm, I'm on my way to work, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I usually walk around the ledges. I find it kind of <laughs> helps me unwind. I don't know. Really. You, uh, you don't happen to be in advertising uh, by any chance, do you? <laughs> yeah, I was more than a lucky guess. We got a, we got a lot of advertising people out here. <laughs> Oh, which, which way did you come out, by the way? Did you come out through the window or did you come around the corner of the building? <laughs> no, the, the reason I asked, uh, there are two other advertising guys on the southeast corner. I thought maybe... <laughs> no, as, as a matter of fact, I, I didn't get their names. Um, I think one guy had the Edsel account or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, you're drawing a hell of a crowd for a weekday. Yeah, really. The last couple of years, uh, jumping has, has really uh, fallen off. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't mean it that way. I, 
No, really, seriously. Uh, you, you take 1929, for example. Uh, you literally couldn't get out on this ledge in 1929. <laughs> no, we, we had people uh, lined up in the corridors just waiting to get out on the ledge. <laughs> finally, uh, we finally went to that numbered card system they use in the butcher shop, you, you probably see. <laughs> well, you see the, see the cart down there? Yeah, the, the hot dog stand? That's Sam, the hot dog man. Hi, Sam, how are you? How's, how's the what? I just tell them, hell of a crowd for a Thursday, isn't it? <laughs> Listen, have, have you eaten, by the way? Well, don't be so... Uh, two, Sam. <laughs> Do you, you, want, you want everything on it? Uh, two, two with everything, Sam. No, no, to go, Sam, to go. Something turned you in. Yeah, you see, see the, the guys with the net down there? Yeah, they're, they're firemen. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'll give you a little tip there. You, you might kind of edge your way toward the corner of the building, you see. Then they'll start to follow you. Then you run back here and jump. <laughs> well, they, they get all confused and they start pulling different directions. They'll, they'll never make it back in time, believe me. <laughs> Don't be silly. I'm glad to do it for you. Listen, gee, I really ought to be getting to work, you know. I'd love to stay around and catch it. No, don't be silly. Take, take your own sweet time about it. Yeah, that is a long way down, isn't it? You, um, you're kind of chickening out now, huh? That happens quite a bit. You, you, you have a certain responsibility to those people down there, though. I, I, well, some of them been there a half an hour or so, you know. No, no, it's, it's up to you. I mean, uh, if you don't want to, you, you know, you don't have to. Well, all right, sure. Uh, well, listen, I'll, I'll get in and then, and then you follow me, all right? Okay. Oh, uh, uh, one... Now, where the hell did he go? <laughs> This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Blue Cloud 
bright blessed days darkness of night and I think to myself what a wonderful world the colors of the rainbow so pretty in the sky also on the faces of people going by I see friends shaking hands saying how do you do they're really saying I love you I hear babies cry Watch them grow They'll learn much more Than I'll ever know And I think to myself What a And I think to myself What a wonderful world From the Tom it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. Tomorrow, of course, is Armchair Politics. Woodrow Stanley joins our roundtable regulars. Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter will start out the show tomorrow with Chuck Collins from the Institute for Policy Studies. I want to say thanks to uh, my guests today, this past hour, talking about the book Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts for Lifetime Success, co-written by Sam Goldstein and today's guest, Robert Brooks. And uh, before that, we had uh, an interesting conversation about immigration with prominent immigration attorney and founder of Goss Associates, Elizabeth Goss. The first hour, we uh, had to shift gears a little bit. I had planned to talk with uh, Rich Baird's uh, attorney, Randall Levine. He had to cancel at the last minute, so we heard instead a conversation with Dr. Randall Bell, uh, an economist who uh, uh, has written a book uh, about post-traumatic thriving. Anyway, that's Smoking George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. So good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. 
most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.